All right. Well, we are. Uh, this will be our last session on the Bible. Um, next week, Scott will be talking about the doctrine of God. Right. Sure. So nice, light, easy topic. So we've kind of been going through, I mean, one thing with the Bible, I mean, we've been talking about how it's revelation, right? It reveals the voice of God. We can understand God through what it says, uh, through what the Bible um, says. Uh, We talked a little bit about how we know uh, what books of the Bible are indeed the books of the Bible. We're kind of wrapping up with a discussion of inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. But I wanted to... um, yeah, maybe kind of float this question by you to talk about the significance of this. What are the implications of errors in the Bible? If you were to say that the Bible has some errors, how would that impact just theology and this project of theology in general? What do you think? Yeah, Chris. If it has errors, then it wasn't breathed out like through like the spirit okay divinely influenced so if there are errors then what does that say about like God okay if there are errors yeah then you get into some questions of did God right did God indeed breathe it out right that would be a question or two if he did breathe it out why would he breathe it out with errors in it right any other thoughts yeah. If there's errors, then maybe I should, should I trust it? Mm-hmm. Like, kind of like the news. You don't know if it's true or not. So yeah, if there's errors. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't trust it. Yeah, there's errors. Kind of like the news. I'm just repeating everything for people at home here. <laughs> there's errors. Then can we trust it like like the news? Yeah. I think some things that uh, I see a lot of times is uh, just not, not realizing that when you when you find an error, it, it assumes that you found a more reliable source, right? So people okay. like to deconstruct things, okay, uh, without posing what their more reliable source is. Yeah, right. And so when someone, when we admit that there's an error, it requires that there exists something more reliable, a more reliable source of truth. Okay, I think that's an interesting point. If you find an error, it implies that there's a more reliable source of truth. Yeah, that's good. Other thoughts on if there's errors in the Bible? Yeah, all of. Uh, maybe it like it gives the idea that maybe it's been like tampered with, like by publishers or something. Yeah, it might have been tampered with, right? Maybe in the transmission of it. Okay, other thoughts? Makes it hard to defend. Makes it difficult to defend. Why is that? Because I mean, if someone finds errors, I mean, they'll poke holes in your. Uh huh. Yeah. Kind of loses credibility. Loses credibility. Mm hmm. Yeah, so all that to say, I mean, all this discussion about the Bible, right, that we've had, it kind of builds up to this whole doctrine of what we call inerrancy. Uh, Really is, um, you know, the Bible is authoritative. All of it is authoritative. And so I have some uh, definitions here. Uh, The definition of inerrancy. uh, This is the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, by the way. Being holy and verbally God-given... Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less than what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. So I have a simpler one that I want to give to you. 
Um, scripture, in its original manuscripts, does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Okay, so scripture in its original manuscripts, right, does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Okay, so I think that's maybe a simpler one than what we read in the more of a technical definition of the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Uh, but it, this is um, something that when this is lost, there's really a, a crumbling of the faith. Because remember, we talked about how all theology is built off of the right interpretation uh, of Scripture. And if you can't count on the Scriptures to say what's true, right, and accurate, then how do you know anything is right about God? Right? I, I really like your point, Scott, about what is the authority if it's not Scripture. And so here's a simple syllogism to prove inerrancy. God is true. Scripture is breathed out by God. The scriptures must be true because they were breathed out by God, right? God is true. And, and we can even add, you know, God is powerful. Like if God wanted to write an authoritative book without errors, could God do it? So the question is, did God do it, right? So now you look at the scriptural proofs of inerrancy. Um, one is that God viewed or Christ viewed scripture as an error. Somebody want to read that passage for me, Matthew 5, 17 through 20? Volunteer reader, anyone? Okay, go ahead, Chris. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So I'm going to give you a little Hebrew lesson here. These are two Hebrew letters. This is uh, Koph and this is Dalit, right? And what's the difference between these two letters? Right here, right? So when Jesus is talking about every uh, jot or tittle, he's talking about like a little mark like that, okay? So how does affirming every smallest stroke or letter uphold inerrancy? I mean, how does this passage prove that you know, the Bible is without error. The Bible never speaks untruthfully about anything. Yeah, Chris, while you're at it. Even if the most fundamental parts are perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. Jesus is not talking about the broad ideas are correct. Does that make sense? He's not saying that, you know, the general message is correct. I mean, he's saying that every letter... Every letter matters. Does that make sense? And, and so, and, and that's kind of a, you know, one of the things that people will say is that sometimes, you know, maybe God uses a story that was accepted as true at the time, but is not really true to make a true point. You guys understand that? Mm -hmm. So the flood didn't actually happen, but he uses this story to make a true point about God. What would be the problem with that? 
Will, go ahead. I know this is right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> everything becomes analogy or symbolism, and then you can interpret take your interpretation, whatever else you want it to be. Yeah. There's no fact anymore. There's no nothing to solid ground to stand on. Yeah, it kind of unmoors a lot of the, the teaching, right? Yeah, and I mean, God can use a story that's not true. He can use a parable, and if he says that that, you know, he's using a parable, it's like that's not the way that the scripture yeah. or the author presents itself. Yeah, I mean, what about saying, well, we know Job didn't actually happen, but it makes a true point. What do you think? That's not how it's written. It's written as <coughs> mm-hmm. It's written, yeah. And what are some indications of that? He uses an actual location. He uses actual names. A lot of things are kind of true to life. So, I mean, there, there is some, you know, there's some indications, right? You even look at Genesis, right? At what point would, like, if you look at the later parts of Genesis, those are definitely history, right? So when did it become history if you don't, you know, let's say take the opening chapters of Genesis um, as history, right? So there, so, but all that to say, Jesus doesn't say the broad message of the Bible is true. He's saying that every jot and tittle matters. Every, every word, every word matters. And um, the other thing that's kind of interesting too is you look at like Jonah is affirmed by Jesus, Moses is affirmed by Jesus, David is affirmed by Jesus, Adam is affirmed by Jesus. I mean, all of these Old Testament characters he treats as, as actual historical figures. So then we look at, um, you know, that's kind of Jesus' affirmation of the Old Testament. Then you have key passage to de- passages depend on smallest letters and strokes. So, Melanie, you want to read uh, Matthew 22, 43 through 45, right there? He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David called them, called calls him Lord. How is he his son? Okay. So what single word serves as the crux of the argument? And how does this support inerrancy? So looking at this passage, what's the single word that's really at the focus here? Lord. Lord, right? So he's saying that, so it all hinges on a single word and what the word means, right? So how would that affirm inerrancy? Want to give it a shot, Scott? Well, I mean, Jesus is making a specific point based on the fact that this, these words, like pay attention to this one word. And so he doesn't seem to make an argument that, you know, there's a broad picture or a theme or whatever that's, mm-hmm. that's making this argument. He's, he's paying attention to the finest detail to mm-hmm. make an argument. That's a, an important, you know, theological point. Yeah, right. So the word, the words matter. Um, we also see that the grammar matters. Even like, oh, yeah, sorry. go ahead. You get to the one about seed and seeds and, yeah, you know, I'm sorry, didn't want to get out of order. But like but, how he talks about, you know, the, the argument that's made about Abraham and the promises made to his seed, not seeds. So it's mm-hmm. like singular versus plural. 
So that's just one, I assume, one letter. Yeah, that'd be another example. Yeah. Yeah, so the word, word choice matters. He builds an entire argument off of one word. And then you see that even the grammar matters. Uh, someone want to get Matthew 22, 32? God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Okay. So why is the verb tense so important to Jesus' argument? Now keep in mind, he's talking to the Sadducees here, who question whether or not there is life after death. And part of their um, belief was they only affirmed the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So life after death is clearly seen in, let's say, Daniel. But here Jesus argues that life after death is seen in, uh, this would be a quote from Exodus, right? Um, so what's the, what's the verb tense here? Like what, why is the verb tense, what verb tense is he making that's just so critical to this argument? Present. Uses the present, right? I am in the present tense, and why is that important? It shows that they are living right then. Yeah, they're in the present tense. Uh, it's not like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are done and gone, right? Or, yeah, are done and gone, right? So, so every word matters. Um, every verb tense matters. Jesus affirms that all the letters matter. And then you kind of go through Jesus' ministry and how many Old Testament references he makes that refer to historical figures. And he'll talk about how Moses wrote something, which... Uh, is interesting because a lot of modern scholars would say that Moses did not write that. Um, that somebody wrote in the name of Moses, but here Jesus is saying Moses wrote um, what's called the Pentateuch. Okay, so when you look at Jesus, Jesus clearly affirms uh, inerrancy and the authority of the Old Testament. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the parameters of inerrancy because I think this can be where, where some people uh, get into a little bit of trouble about for something to be true, right, or without error, um, you can put some, some burdens on that statement that don't necessarily belong there, okay? So I'll kind of break this down as we go on. And, um, and incidentally, I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is like when you read the Gospels, right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are interesting books because they have like an, an overlapping story right? All the stories often overlap. And so if you're a, a friendly atheist, you might, you know, want to kind of nitpick at all these contradictions there. And that's usually the battleground that you find. Um, first and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles would be another one where overlapping stories, you know, how do you harmonize the reign of the kings and some of those things. And, and, and there's answers to all that, but, but you just think about um, the Gospels in general and why do some of them tell different stories and some of them in different ways, okay? So some of the parameters are inerrancy allows for uh, variety in style, right? The Gospel of John was written in the simple style one might expect of an unlearned fisherman. Luke was written with more sophisticated vocabulary of an educated person. Paul's epistles reflect the logic of a philosopher. All of these are variations. All these variations are entirely compatible with inerrancy. Right, why well, it's important to remember that uh, inerrancy doesn't mean <coughs> uniformity of style. 
that different books have different feels to them. How does that help maintain inerrancy? It's, mm -hmm. it's multiple sources. Yeah. There's multiple sources, right? So you have, remember, you know, the whole revelation you know, is God speaks you through man, right? And um, revelation doesn't mean that God dictates exactly what he wants to man, although there have been some occasions where that has been taking place. As men moved by the Holy Spirit speak from God. And so sometimes you actually have like some women like Miriam you know, produced a you know, psalm in, uh, in Exodus. Uh, I think Deborah records scripture. But it's God working through man. And, and man has different vocabulary, different personalities, different ways of expression that God superintends it through man. So there's going to be a variety of, of style, different ways of saying the same thing, right? And that's going to come out a little bit later on uh, as we go through this. Um, or I guess, I guess, Paul, I'm going to put you on the spot, right? Paul, are you here? You've done translation. Yeah, you've done translation before, right? So if I were to um, talk about how so-and-so kicked the bucket, how would you translate that to your Spanish audience? Yeah, do you know what that expression means? No, I don't. Well, it means, okay. <laughs> That's a good point. There we go, right? The kick the bucket means that they died, right? Um. <laughs> so she could translate to the, you know, a Spanish-speaking audience. They literally kicked the bucket, right? And everyone would be saying, what? what? <laughs> or she could just say, they died. Do you see what I'm saying? And so a lot of times when, you know, these Gospels, when they were written, they're written in Greek, that they're translated from Aramaic, which was probably the language Jesus spoke most of the time. Uh, I think there's times when he probably spoke Hebrew. He might have spoken Greek at times too. But there is a, a way to faithfully translate someone for the audience that is still true, right? Is that a mistranslation if she says, Dave said he died when I said kick the bucket, right? So there is an allowance that we can make for approximation making the same statement, and there would be good reasons for it, right? Remember, it's not saying anything that's contrary to fact. That is not a false statement, okay? So uh, inerrancy allows for details, a variety of details in explaining the same event. Uh, this phenomenon is particularly observed in the synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's important to remember that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and the writers of scripture wrote their accounts in Greek meaning they had to translate the original words into Greek. Two writers would use slightly different words to describe the same incident, yet both would give the same meaning. There is an additional reason for a variety of details. The various writers may have emphasized different aspects of an event in order to best convey their message. This would make the details appear different, yet both would be accurate, right? And so, let's say you guys bore witness to a car accident. You guys would probably notice different things. I'll pick on Rick Bylander. Rick Bylander would notice the make and the model of the two cars involved. Right? And he'd tell you all about the history of the engine and why Mazda made that engine. It actually wasn't Toyota. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He'd give you all these details, right? Yeah. God bless Rick. Right? And, and, and that's what he would tell you. Um, somebody else 
who, unless they knew the passengers involved, might have a greater emphasis on the passengers who were involved. Right? One would be, you know, Rick might be, you know, how could we prevent this, these safety mechanisms you know, and mm -hmm. traffic, you know what I'm saying? That might be more of his emphasis when he talks about the make and model of the car while the brakes failed because, you know, this model of car does this, 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 right? There, there'd be a good reason for him to bring all that up, whereas other people would say, well, I'm just concerned about what can we do to help the people in the car? So both are true, um, but both would have different agendas. Does that make sense? But the same event happened. Yeah. It's just the witnesses saw different things. We're gonna say something, Scott? Just, uh, I think I remember reading an article and he was, the author was talking about a seminary professor that just reminded them over and over again that um, whenever you're reading an account, you, can, you can't say it all, was the thing he kept saying. You can't say it all, so like, no, you're, there's no account ever written anywhere of anything where they describe every detail of what happened. So yeah. every, every time you record an event, you make a selection <coughs> choosing what are the important facts and events that, that you want to convey. And yeah. every person always leaves information out because yeah. you can never say it all. Yeah. So it's like choosing, asking when you read the Gospels, why did they include this? Why, mm -hmm. why is that there? It's there for a reason. And they left out a bunch of other stuff they could, could have chosen from, but this is what they've yeah. chosen. Yeah, and this is something I'm kind of wrestling with. So I'm teaching Luke, right? And I've, and I've taught Matthew before. Mm -hmm. And Matthew and, and Luke have a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's always tempting to do is to talk about why Luke did not record this a detail from Matthew. Mm -hmm. Almost like, I'm, and you can almost pit them against each yeah. other. Like, and it's not like when Theophilus read Luke, he's reading Matthew as well going, well, Luke, why don't you bring this up? You know what I'm saying? There, there is a sense where you want to convey what was mm -hmm. originally intended. Mm -hmm. And all of that stuff was true. And it can be reconciled with Matthew, but you don't need Matthew to understand Luke mm -hmm. or Luke to understand Matthew. Does that make sense? Um, but yeah, you can't say it all. And that kind of brings us to this next point. Inerrancy does not demand verbatim reporting of events. In times of antiquity, it was not the practice to give verbatim repetition every time something was written out. For instance, Let's say one account in Chronicles says 147 people died, and another one says 8,000 people died. <coughs> Is this guy a liar? He might have been rounding. <laughs> yeah. 8,000 people did die. And remember, and that's why I kind of go back to this definition of Scripture in its original manuscripts does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Now, let's say one said this number, and another one said um, 22,000, right? That, that would be an apparent contradiction. Does that make sense? But eight, that, I mean, rounding uh, is not necessarily a lie, right? We, we understand that. that. This is still a true statement. I mean, why, why do you think the... You know, the authors of scripture just did approximations and abbreviations and all that. Why did they maybe record a conversation, summarize a con con uh, sorry, a conversation instead of like verbatim quoting it? Save time. Or space Save time. On the page. Time or space mm -hmm. on the page. Yeah, and you have to remember, paper was 
super expensive back then. Right? And so, yeah, they would summarize um, you know, these conversations. Well, and the, the more reliable way of transmitting something and keeping it was orally. Like, through, you use somebody else's memory. Yeah. And then you use somebody else's memory. That was far more reliable than using, like, skins or stone or papyrus or whatever at the time. I mean, until mm -hmm. long after Jesus died. It was actually more reliable to store something in people's brains. Yeah. And so that's why you end up with things like the Iliad and the Odyssey, where it's told in verse because it's easier to remember that way. Or you mm -hmm. have rounded numbers because they're easier to remember. Or you have lists because they're easy to remember. Mm -hmm. Is that almost everything other than the epistles and scripture and revelation, everything else basically was in mm -hmm. oral form <coughs> long before it was yeah. written and transmitted that way continually. Yeah. So you look at, let's say, the book of Job. Right? Job is an, basically an epic poem. And the way they speak has a rhythm and a rhyme and everything to it. And I think part of that is so that it can stick to memory. Now, everything that would be said, and this is where you get into, um, I'll use two Latin phrases, epissima verba and epissima vox. Okay? So, do you preserve the voice or the words? Did that make sense? So. When, is there a word-for-word -word recollection of all of Jesus' words? Or a voice recollection of Jesus' words? And, and, and maybe the, um, an example would be, um, you know, again, when you're translating, right? You might get, instead of saying kick the bucket, which would be, and translating kick the bucket as kick the bucket, that would be epistema vox, and that's epistema verba, mm -hmm. it'd be, and he died, would be, Epistema box. That's the voice. That's what he said. That's what he meant, right? And all, now I'm not selling the issue on that, but I'm saying that inerrancy is compatible with preserving the voice. Does that make sense? So even if you know, they they you know Job wrote down the conversations that he had, you know, with his counselors, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he would have taken that voice and preserved it in a way that's easily memorized, you know, that is still inspiration because the Lord is working through Job to produce this book. And that's the inspired part. The, the book was inspired, not necessarily the events. Does that make sense? And all, of, all the things that he wrote down um, is consistent with the events. Bildad would not say I was misquoted there. Does that make sense? So there's some there's some allowance for that in scripture. Yeah, any questions about that? And then uh, another one, I guess you guys already turned the page. Inerrancy allows for departure from standard forms of grammar. Okay? You know, grammar is not inspired. <laughs> or punctuation. Yeah, or punctuation, right? And when you look at, like, how, how do you derive a grammar? It's basically observations about language, right? Somebody makes an observation about how languages are used and how words relate to each other, and then they summarize it in rules so that going forward, 
all of the language matches what was written in the past. And it's constantly changing. And it's constantly time. changing. Right? Like, did you know ginormous was not a word? <laughs> <laughs> or do you put a comma before the and of the last thing? Mm -hmm. that yeah, and, and, and you know, the person who made the rules are people who made observations about language and how it was used in the past and said, okay, from now on, this is a rule, this is what we do going forward. Yeah. So grammatical mistakes are not, you know, I know some of you are thinking, it's about time somebody said this. <laughs> <laughs> if I yeah. take a breath, the comma belongs there, yeah. right? It's even that way, it's funny, it's even that way in, uh, like it's hard to explain sometimes in, when I teach, I teach math at the high school, and there's a lot of mathematics that's like conventions that we've designed and the way that we say and define words. And so sometimes it's even, there's a difference of opinions on this word. And then sometimes it means this, and in some states it means this. And so it's like, what? What's a trapezoid? Well, it kind of depends on where you're at. You mean there's a different definition of trapezoid? <laughs> yeah, there are, yeah. So anyway, it's, it's like, mm -hmm. we, we kind of are creating and refining our vocabulary yeah. and our grammar all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and what I'm trying to point out here is like when people attack inerrancy, they will just kind of go after you know, this very narrow wooden sense it can only mean this. But when you understand it's not affirming anything that's contrary to fact. I mean, what is saying it is true. I think another one is um, inerrancy allows for problem passages. With a work as vast as the Holy Scriptures, it is nearly impossible to provide solutions to all of the problems. In one case, a solution awaits the findings of the archaeologist spade, and in another case, it awaits for the linguist research. In still others, the solution may never be discovered. It is never an option, however, to take our inability to solve every problem and suggest that there are contradictions to errors in scriptures. If the scriptures are God-breathed, they must be entirely without error. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at the Quran, uh, the Quran affirms that there are contradictions in the Quran. But do you know how they resolve it? They say, whatever was written last is what stands. And the argument is, God is so sovereign <coughs> that he can change his mind if he wants to. He is not even bound by his own rules. And that's different from the Christian God, as we're going to see. God is bound by his character and his nature. He cannot lie. There are things that he cannot do. Um, now, when it comes to uh, problem passages, like I, I've always been told, okay, there's errors, you know, there's contradictions in the scripture. Do you know what my response to that is? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> like what? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And they'll do God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, but a lot of people just don't know where they are. Now, are there problem passages? Mm -hmm. Well, let's look at one, okay? Let's go to Matthew. 27. Did somebody want to read 3 through 10? Okay, who wants to read 3 through 10 for me? Okay, you got it. <laughs> then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. 
I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What is that to us, they said. See it to yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, It's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury, since it is blood money. They conferred together <clears throat> and brought the potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, okay. Okay. Do you want through 10? Yeah, I can through 10. Oh, okay. Therefore, that field has been called blood field to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Okay, so there's some key details here, right? How, how did you decide? He hung himself, right? And what did he do before he, he died? He threw the silver. Okay, so he hung himself. And how much silver are we talking about? 30 pieces. Okay, so I took 30 pieces of, pieces of silver. Silver. And then he tossed them in the temple, right? In the temple. And then what did the priest do? What was that? Bought the field. They bought a field. And what's the purpose of the field? Very strangers. Okay. Very strangers. Okay, now flip over. Okay, we have these details. Okay. So Judas took 30 pieces of silver, tossed them in the temple, hung himself, bought a field to bury strangers. Okay. So let's go to uh, Acts chapter 1. Okay, I need uh, one, we'll do 18 through 19. This is uh, why they're picking another disciple as the context. And Luke gives a little explanation of what happened. Okay, go ahead. 18 through 19, who wants to read that one? Cole, you up for it? Next one, 18 through 19. Okay. Yeah, that's right, it changed. <laughs> All right. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of, the, of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was, was called in their own language Akeldama, mm -hmm. that is, field of blood. Okay. So looking at this passage, okay, what happened? So this is Matthew over here. Well, it says he acquired the field with the reward. Okay. So it seems like he bought it. Okay, it seems like, so Judas 
bought the field, right? Okay, what else do we have? Like ID first open. Okay. Prior to that, he falls headlong. Yep. Field. Yeah, it's also called field, field blend. Oh, yeah. So you have two mentions of field of blood, right? <coughs> Why is yeah. it in parentheses? Huh? Why is it in parentheses? It's kind of showing an aside. Okay. Okay, so these are some of the details, right? Now, a couple things that we have in common, right, is there is a connection between the money, it's the same money that was used to purchase, right? Uh, Judas is the protagonist. Judas dies, right? Here it says he hung himself, falls headline, headlong. They both imply suicide, right? Um, Field of Blood is also there. Now, what are the apparent contradictions? Who owns the field? Who owns the field, right? So, who made the who made the purchase? Mm -hmm. Who made the purchase? Okay. So what else is? Well, Acts includes the lovely detail about bursting open. Uh huh. <laughs> the, ki the kid's favorite. Yeah. Okay. Now, does this necessarily contradict this? No. Not necessarily, right? <coughs> yeah, the extra thing about the potter's field, that doesn't necessarily contradict, right? Um, you see that it's the same locale, right? Everyone knows knows where this event happened. Right? So there's a lot of things that are and in everyone knows that the blood money is what bought that. Field. Yeah. Like it wasn't his, it wasn't in his name or whatever before that. Yeah. Yeah, the blood money is what bought the field, right? The money that the money that he received from betraying Jesus was used to purchase that field. So the issue was, did the priest buy the field or did Judas buy the field? Okay. So a lot of times you have to look at, okay, how can we harmonize these things, right? Well, if you're a priest and you're buying a field for an unclean purpose, right, with blood money. Do you want to have on the deed Caiaphas? No. Right? It would make sense that they would go ahead and put Judas on the title. Because they yep. didn't accept the money. Huh? They didn't want that money. They didn't want that money. So that's it's right. still his money. So it's still his excellent point. I like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he didn't accept the, they didn't accept the money from him. It's like, okay, you're buying it. This is what Judas would want, right? Mm -hmm. So Judas did buy the field. If you were to look at maybe a land title deed during that day, it would be Judas, owner of that field. Right? So that's a pretty easy way to reconcile it. But then probably the hard, you know, both of these are suicide. So did he fall headlong or did he hang himself? How did he kill himself? Yeah. He hung himself and then probably you would, they would leave him up there. So then he would bloat okay. and then they would cut him down. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so you guys have seen, you guys ever seen uh, Castaway? <laughs> right? How was he going to hang himself? Right? Giant cliff here, tree here. I'm going to do a little hangman. Snaps. There's no blank Then arm. <laughs> okay. Bursting. Bursting. Yeah, he's bursting out there. I think that's pretty good. I'm, I'm a good dictionary. <laughs> now, one of, one of the issues with that is geographically, that's, that's kind of a difficult. Um, it's not like there, there were giant cliff, cliffs there. It is possible. Okay, but there's another one. Anybody have an ESV? Well, if you, there's a little footnote at the bottom of um, 18. So verse 18, I know my footnote has a number two. And the number two, instead of saying falling headlong, it says swelling up. Okay, do you guys see that? So there's some discussion that what could have happened was he hung himself, and what happens to a body that just is on the tree for a long time, right? The body goes like this, and then the body kind of cracks open, and you have <laughs> Work with me here. All right, let's go. <laughs> so there's a. I'll erase it before the kids come here. Don't worry. <laughs> and so he hung himself. But what what would be Luke's bigger point that he's trying to make? Is that how he killed himself? The fact that he said. And why is it called the field of blood? Because his blood's on the field. His blood's on the field, right? And definitely, like, a, that was a super disgraceful death for so many reasons. And Luke just says it. He just says it, right? Like the, the worst. Yeah, all his insides just kind of... You know, it, it was Maybe because he was the physician, he's like, oh, talk about the... Well, later, later on, he talks about the death of Herod and how all his insides yeah. fell out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Luke kind of likes gore. Yeah. <laughs> Eat my worms. Eat <laughs> my worms. Yeah, he got a, an awful death. So I mean that that would be just a what so do you see is there a contradiction here? Right? When you really think about it, not really. Both of these are not contrary to fact. Yeah, and like in Matthew it says, like we were talking about the money, they, they say specifically, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury. It's like these can never go on our books. Yeah. Like this yeah. is yeah. never can be our money. Yeah. So what are we gonna do with Judas money? Yeah, and and Matthew was more in tune with a lot of the Jewish traditions and how they and even that shows the hypocrisy, right? Right. Of the Jews, where oh, we need to make sure that we adhere to the law here, as they just crucified the Messiah. See what I'm saying? So there, there's a reason why he's bringing out that detail, but but they don't contradict. Yeah. Well, and Matthew, the way that he tells the story, like directly, every detail he includes is from Zechariah, which is an enacted like an acted out prophecy mm-hmm. that had not a ton of purpose in Zechariah. It was like acted yeah. out prophecy, and so he's showing how each of those elements fulfill mm-hmm. the act yeah. about prophecy. Mm-hmm. Whereas Luke, Luke is generally not concerned with that, mm-hmm. and yeah. certainly not in this passage. Yeah, yeah. It almost points to the accuracy of everything. Like, if you're a detective and taking mm-hmm. a bunch of witnesses, 
and they all, five witnesses said the exact same story, you'd say, okay, they all got together and made something. Yeah. But if you talk to an accountant and he leans towards the money laundering side of things and you talk to, uh, I don't know, a deer hunter or something and he is more about the guns, I don't know. Yeah. It would make sense. It would make more sense. If yeah. Yeah, they're they're not they're not all colluding. So Matthew and Mark are, are not afraid. If they knew about each other, they're not afraid to disagree with each other. You know I'm saying it's not like this uniform. Uh, sorry, but yeah, that's just one example. I always think this is just a fascinating one of an apparent contradiction, where oh, swelling out, spilling their guts out, or or it could be you know eventually the body decomposed and he fell on the field. I mean, he's. Uh, Falling headlong um, can mean different things, right? So that's just one example, and there's other examples. Like there's a, if you look at how the um, the First Chronicles and Second or First and Second Kings and uh, First and Second Chronicles are able to reconcile with the rule with the different rulers and when they reigned and for how long, there is this ingenious solution that someone came up with about how they count the reigns of a king. And so he came up with the system, showed how it worked, and every single apparent contradiction was perfectly resolved um, with that formulation. Because he was talking about how two different cultures would have, well, two different cultures would have understood yeah. the reign. Yeah, so I can't give you the exact formula, but I remember reading it, and it's like, yeah. yes, yes. What do you know? It all fits together. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, like, they question about whether or not the Hittites actually existed. Well, they do exist. So the Bible has really stood the test of a lot of scrutiny, uh, and inerrancy still holds. Okay? Any questions about that? Closing thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to um, yeah. say don't be intimidated when people say, oh, you're a fundamentalist or you're narrow-minded because you believe the Bible. There's so many different words of God. Um, that's just because they don't take the time to look into all the evidence that's there. And we still have to come, I think, to the Lord by faith and trust that this is the word of God. Mm -hmm. But it's not a blind faith. It's a, um, yeah. a active living and mm -hmm. has so much evidence behind it. Mm -hmm. But... Again, Satan wants to deceive people yeah. and try to keep them eyes off of the word of the true word of God. Yeah. Eliminate that. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I mean, a lot of times people would say, besides the Bible, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, why do you dismiss the Bible? What is it about the Bible that disqualifies it from being a true to life testimony? And if somebody were to say Jesus rose from the dead but not believe it, what would that say about their credibility? So I, I used to kind of play that game, too. But I just learned the Bible. It's its own best witness. You know, Pontius Pilate, real person. Herod, real person. Paul, real person. Jesus. I mean, you go down the line. These are all real people in real places, and they're not portrayed in some mythical manner. And then finally, inerrancy demands the account does not teach error or contradiction. In the statements of Scripture, whatever is written is in accord with the way things are. So conclusion... You know, for this whole study, the foundation of all theology rests upon the rock of the word. What you believe about the word will determine what you believe about creation, the resurrection, salvation, the return of Christ. Yet the scripture is more than just a theological tome. In the words of the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, 
and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. May God give us the love and reverence for his word, so that we might pursue him through the pages of Holy Scripture. In the words of Puritan Divine Thomas Watson, the word is the field where Christ, the pearl of price, is hidden. In, his, in the sacred mind we dig, not for a wedge of gold, but for a weight of glory. The scripture is a sacred eyesal to illuminate us. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. The scripture is the chart and compass by which we sail to the new Jerusalem. It is the sovereign cordial of all our distresses. What are the promises but the water of life to renew fainting spirits? So, even the Puritan divines just had a great esteem for the word. So let's pray and then we'll move on to our next part of worship. Well, Father, I do thank you for these brothers and sisters here, and I thank you for the word and what the word teaches about itself. And I pray that we will take this and just commend our lives to the authority of you expressed through your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.